This is the History of the World podcast with me, Chris Hasler. And you're listening to Volume 3, The Classical World. Episode 52, Ancient Rome, A Summary, Part 2. Claudius would successfully annex many lands of Britannia after a conflict between the pro-Roman and anti-Roman tribes of the island. Even though emperors such as Claudius have a case both for and against him being referred to as a good emperor, the Roman Empire was still expanding its borders. Most historians will agree that Emperor Nero was a bad emperor, and he was described as playing his lyre while the city of Rome was on fire in the year 64. This event is very significant though. It is unimaginable that Nero would enjoy seeing the destruction of his affluent city that supported his lavish lifestyle. There are reports of Nero allowing refuge and relief to some of the two million Romans who are reckoned to have been made homeless by this great fire. Due to Nero subsequently building a new palace in Rome in the aftermath, some suggested that he started the fire himself in order to clear space for the project. Whether this is true or not, Nero would point his finger firmly in the direction of the Christians who were a minor religious group who had splintered off from the Jewish people. The heartlands of the Jewish people was Judea and its capital city, Jerusalem. These lands had been turned into a Roman province in the year 6, when Jesus Christ was just a child. When Jesus was an adult, he would deviate from the traditional Judaism by preaching his alternative. Unfortunately, the most prominent Jews at the time were not happy with this and Jesus was executed by the Romans to prevent unrest in their province. However, when his body seemingly disappeared from its tomb within three days, his followers would believe that this was caused by divinity and they believed that he was the Son of God, therefore creating a new set of beliefs called Christianity. Both Judaism and Christianity view the city of Jerusalem as holy. The Christians couldn't stay in Jerusalem due to the opposition from the Jews and dispersed, spreading the word of Jesus wherever they went. Saul of Tarsus, also known as Paul the Apostle, would be an important figure in this early apostolic age of Christianity. Paul may have even died in Rome alongside the Christians persecuted by Nero after the Great Fire of Rome. The Roman relationship with the Jews in Judea was very tense due to the fact that the Romans had absolutely no regard for the sanctity of Jerusalem in the Jewish religion, attempting to promote paganism there. The tensions would become too high and with the Jews revolting against Roman sacrilege in their city, the Romans would be forced to deal with it with a heavy hand. 
Jerusalem was besieged for five months before it surrendered. The holy second temple of Jerusalem was destroyed and many Jews were captured and consigned to a life of slavery. Other Jews dispersed and in one gruesome instance of when religion can bring out extremities in human behaviour, a number of Jews chose to murder one another rather than be captured by the Romans after a siege at a hilltop called Masada. Almost a thousand Jews chose this fate and the reason why they needed to murder each other is because suicide is forbidden. So this was the closest thing to suicide permitted. Many enslaved Jews were put to work on building projects in Rome, one of the most notable being the Colosseum, the iconic amphitheatre which supported crowds of up to 50,000 individuals who flocked there to watch the entertainment laid on inside. Not only had the amphitheatre been built with Jewish labour, but it was probably paid for using Jewish treasures pillaged from Jerusalem 10 years before it opened, which incidentally is the same time span for the completion of the project. Emperor Titus was responsible for the siege of Jerusalem before he became the emperor, and he needed the celebration of a 100 days of games on the official opening of the Colosseum in order to please the gods, most notably those ones who furiously caused the eruption of Mount Vesuvius in the previous year, at the very start of the reign of Emperor Titus. It would be Pliny the Younger's account of what happened at Mount Vesuvius that tells us much of what we know today, especially when it comes to the fate of his uncle Pliny the Elder, who died attempting to get a closer view of what was happening. Pliny the Elder's legacy is that he probably wrote the first encyclopaedia when he wrote the Naturalis Historia. Pliny the Younger described the events at Vesuvius in his letter to the historian called Tacitus. The eruption of Mount Vesuvius caused debris to fall from the sky and then storm across the land, either incinerating or engulfing anything in its way. Maybe as many as 20,000 lost their lives. Tacitus is regarded as working during the post-Augustan period of literature, which is called the Silver Age. Tacitus was a historian, but the poets of this age were the likes of Juvenal and Martial, whose works can be quite satirical, but nonetheless very popular. The Roman Empire was probably at its healthiest during these first two centuries of its existence. During the reign of Trajan, the Roman Empire reached its greatest extent when Trajan took Mesopotamia from the Parthians. This was a short-lived conquest, but it shows how Rome had expanded a long way eastwards during the imperial years, and this is also demonstrated by the fact that Romans were now producing glass on a larger scale. Before the empire, glass would have been relatively uninteresting as an industry due to the fact that the materials would need to be imported. But now that the eastern lands were actually within the Roman realm, we can see that glassed windows were now becoming more common and colourless glass was also being produced. It is said that the Romans did not even have a word for glass during the Republic years, so scarce was its appearance. Trade would have been thriving within the empire, with more resources bringing more wealth to the empire. Certainly the Romans 
would have been using steel yard balances for measuring weights in a quick and convenient way, more efficient than the traditional scales due to using the mechanical law of the lever to gauge an item's weight as opposed to using a more time-consuming trial and error method. Rome would also have the whole of North Africa, including Mauritania, under its rule, meaning that it was in control of all the coastlines of the Mediterranean. Trajan died in 117 and his adopted son Hadrian became the emperor. Hadrian would not want to expand the borders further, instead preferring to preserve the lands already conquered, and so he would set about fortifying the northern borders, most famously building a wall from coast to coast across the island of Britannia to mark the frontier of the Roman Empire. This is why the Roman Empire was at its largest extent under his predecessor. Construction would be something that the Romans invested heavily in, with more infrastructure such as the Pons Elius Bridge in Rome, which was so well constructed that it survives to this day. Hadrian's travels around his empire allowed him to contemplate Jerusalem, which had been besieged some 60 years previous, as we already know. Hadrian would plan to build a new temple in Jerusalem, but it certainly wouldn't be a Jewish one. It would be a Roman one. The Jews were absolutely outraged and yet another rebellion broke out. The rebellion led by Simon al-Kochba took control of Jerusalem from the Romans and occupied it. Such was the strength of the Roman Empire at this time that all Hadrian needed to do was assemble enough troops in order to take the city back. The Jews of the Bar Kochba rebellion were slaughtered. All remaining Jews were expelled from Jerusalem, leading to a dispersal of Jews creating diaspora around the empire. The practices of Judaism were outlawed. This period in Roman history is when the cohesion of the Roman Empire was at its finest. All borders were as secure as could be expected, and the Roman Emperor, the Senate, the Praetorian Guard and the legions appeared to be working together harmoniously. We told the story of this healthy period during episode 45. During the reign of Marcus Aurelius, the Roman Empire was threatening to make some permanent gains in the eastern lands of the Parthians. The Romans, under the command of Avidius Cassius, would subjugate most of the lands around the Euphrates River, as far down as the important city of Ctesiphon. This time the Romans would encounter a new enemy that stopped them in their tracks. It was plague. The Antonine Plague could have been smallpox and it could have been measles, but it is believed to have been brought back from the lands of the east and caused great destruction among the Roman legionaries due to its high level of contagiousness then it would affect the population, presenting a weakness to the Roman Empire that was rare during this period. Our assessment of the disease itself is in part thanks to the descriptions offered to us by the highly respected physician called Gallen, who originated in Pergamon and was invited to be the personal physician to Marcus Aurelius himself. His description of the disease is a gruesome account of the ulcerations. Future historians state that the ancient world 
never recovered. And so it is now that we feel that the Roman Empire is passing through an apogee in its glorious story. Marcus Aurelius was valiant in his defence of the Roman Empire during this crisis caused by the Antonine Plague. The Germanic tribes sensed weakness and tried to exploit the situation along the northern borders and Marcus Aurelius was able to hold them off but not conclude things and so it was down to his son Commodus to reach an agreement with the Germanics. Commodus was a terrible emperor though. He was despotic and vain and he allowed corrupt officials to operate within the system. Opponents would try to depose him before he deposed of them until he met his match in the Praetorian prefect Letus who managed to have Commodus murdered on New Year's Eve 192. Generally speaking, the quality of emperors declined during the 3rd century and after the reign of Septimius Severus ended in 211. His son Caracalla would make the bold step of allowing all three men of the empire to have full Roman citizenship rights. This may have been a bid for popularity, but it may have simply served to embolden the different cultures of the empire. It did not do anything positive for anybody in the role of emperor. The Severan dynasty petered out without anything to boast about and afterwards things simply got even worse. Rome celebrated its thousandth birthday during a 50-year period when the average reign of an emperor was around two years only. At the 1,000th birthday celebrations, a thousand gladiators alongside hundreds of exotic animals were killed during a festival of games held at the Colosseum. If you were an emperor during this time, you were likely to suffer a violent death in the same way as did those gladiators and animals. It is during this period that we see the emergence of the Goths as another enemy on the Danube front of the empire. The Goths would play a large part in the story of the later years of the Roman Empire. From the glory of the second century, the empire hit an iconic low point when Emperor Valerian was captured by Shapur, the ruler of the Sasanian Empire. Shapur had conquered Armenia before defeating Valerian in battle. Valerian was held captive and reportedly subjected to numerous humiliations, such as being used by Shapur as a human footstool before he would eventually die in captivity. Rome was in turmoil, and during the aftermath, there were secessions made by the Gallic Empire and the Palmyrene Empire before they were successfully brought back into the Roman Empire again. Even traditional Roman religion was being compromised and brought into question when the Emperor Aurelian declared the worship of Sol Invictus as an official Roman religion on the 25th of December 274, which may have a significant link to why Christians celebrate the birth of Jesus on the same date of the year. It was clear that the Roman Empire needed to be radically reformed in order to survive with emperors coming and going and the borders being threatened by Persians and Germans. The man to do that would be the Emperor Diocletian. Diocletian reorganised the provinces and split the empire into two, with there being a second emperor in the west. 
each of the two emperors would have a Caesar, or a junior emperor, who would be responsible for various provinces in their respective emperor's half. The army would also be reshaped with smaller legions making more effective units. This period of Roman history would mark a significant time in relation to the connection of the Roman Empire with its Christian contingent. At the beginning of this episode, we spoke of the period of Roman history when Christianity emerged and it was expelled from Jerusalem before becoming the scapegoat of Emperor Nero following the Great Fire of Rome. Since then, Christianity had spread through the Roman Empire and it had diversified into different forms. A significant amount of the population now observed Christianity. But their monotheistic ways were deemed to be detrimental to the fortunes of the empire and a threat to the traditional pagan observations and ceremonies. Various Christian persecutions took place during the 3rd century BCE, but under Diocletian came a significant movement against Christians. He issued a series of edicts directed towards the Christian population, which may have numbered as many as 1 in 10 Roman citizens at this point. Firstly, Diocletian would order the destruction of all Christian holy buildings such as churches, but then this would also escalate to the command to all Christians that they must make traditional sacrifices to the Roman deities. Should they refuse to do so, then they would risk their own lives by potentially facing gruesome executions such as being cast into the theatres against the lions. These Christians would simply become martyrs to their cause. When Diocletian retired in 305, his Caesar Galerius would take his place and continue the extreme persecution, and even after Galerius's death in 311, Maximinus Dyer would devote great energy into the continued persecutions. Over in the west, the Caesar in Britannia called Constantius died in 306 and he was succeeded by his son Constantine. This would mark a significant step in the fortunes of the Christian community within the Roman Empire. Constantine would have ambitions of toppling his rival to the role of Augustus in the western half of the empire, whose name was Maxentius and who was occupying Rome itself. Constantine led an army across the Alps and took control of northern Italy. As he marched towards Rome, Maxentius decided to meet Constantine in open battle and travelled out of the city to the Milvian Bridge across the Tiber River. It is said that before engaging in battle, Constantine would be inspired by a vision of a cross representing the Christian symbol and that this contributed towards his ultimate victory over Maxentius at the battle. Constantine would go on to rule the western half of the empire unchallenged. It would be in the following year that Constantine is said to have met with the emperor in the east, Licinius, near the city of Mediolanum, which is modern Milan, and it was proclaimed that religious toleration would be the policy in all Roman provinces. 
This meant that all rights would be returned to Christians, including the ability to keep their places of worship and their sacred scriptures. The specific support for Christianity shown by the Emperor Constantine would encourage more Romans to turn their back on the old pagan practices that seemingly brought little good fortune to their empire and take up the Christian mantle. Constantine would become the sole emperor of the Roman Empire when he defeated Licinius at the Battle of Chrysopolis in 324 and he would continue his attempts to make positive changes to the empire. The Christian church was not a united church with many different sects with distinct beliefs. Constantine commissioned a council at Nicaea where Christianity could be standardised. However, the Arian Christians and their specific beliefs would become marginalised as a consequence. Constantine also created a glorious new capital city for the empire at Byzantium on the Bosporus Strait, the gateway between Europe and Asia. He would rename the city Constantinople in his honour and the power of the empire would shift very definitely eastwards leaving the city of Rome and the Italian peninsula as a place of diminishing significance. Constantinople pointed towards a Christian future, while Rome symbolised the pagan past. Constantine would then make a move that would have historical significance for many centuries to come. He would order the construction of a holy shrine at the site of Jesus' burial in Jerusalem, which would become known as the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. It would become a key site during the Crusades after the turn of the second millennium. A calendar from the 350s suggests that it was written in 336 that Jesus Christ's birthday was on the 25th of December, and it may have been that there was a deliberate desire to choose this date as it was also the original date of the official proclamation of the religion of Sol Invictus in the previous century. This is just a suggested theory with there being little firm evidence relating to an actual date of reference for Jesus' birth in the 300 years preceding. Some Christians in the modern world choose to celebrate in the month of January which is more closely linked to Epiphany. During the 360s, the Emperor Julian was alarmed at the progression of Christianity and feared that the Roman Empire was losing its valuable pagan traditions. Julian is said to have been raised as a Christian but converted to traditional paganism. His attempts to turn back the religious clock of the empire failed and his legacy leaves him as a betrayer of the religion, referred to as Julian the Apostate. The culmination of tensions surrounding Nicene Christianity came to a head during the reign of Theodosius, who made significant moves to establish Orthodox Christianity as supreme above all other religions and the only tolerable religion of the Roman Empire. The Arian Christians were devalued by the deposition of the Bishop of Constantinople and the most symbolic destruction of traditional pagan religion came when the Romans destroyed the temple called the Serapium of Alexandria, possibly losing much of the library of ancient scripts held there. 
we can now consider that Christianity was made the official religion of the empire. A Latin version of the Bible had been completed by the early 5th century. The Roman Empire by this time was coming under greater threat from the barbarian tribes along its borders. With populations continually increasing, there was a constant battle for lands to settle and the barbarians, those non-Roman tribes generally speaking, were growing greater in numbers and abilities. Many Goths had already crossed into Roman lands and the Romans tried a diplomatic approach to the problem, but they could not accommodate the needs of the Goths and the Goths had to take matters into their own hands. It may have been that the Emperor Valens underestimated the Goths when he took the battle to them at Adrianople in 378. The Goths scored a famous victory and the Emperor was never to be seen again. This was all before the reign of Theodosius who made the moves to make Christianity the official religion of the empire but after Theodosius' death the Roman Empire would be split east and west between his two sons. The pressures on the empire being created by the Goths would serve to divide the two halves of the empire as the Eastern Empire quickly realised that it could not afford to make sacrifices to protect the Western Empire. So the Western Empire became comparatively helpless when it came to defending itself against the pressures being created by the barbarians, especially the Goths. The Germanic tribes called the Vandals would invade and ravage Gaul and Hispania, while a brand of the Goths called the Visigoths would invade and sack the city of Rome in 410. This was the first time since the invasion of the Celts back in 390 BCE that Rome had been taken by a foreign tribe. Rome was left as a weakened city by the Visigoths who terrorised the city and its population. The Visigoths did not need to occupy Rome though and so they moved on to Gaul and Hispania themselves while the Vandals, who were already in the lands of Hispania, hopped over to North Africa and took control of the Roman provinces there. The Eastern Empire did nothing. The Vandal invasion of North Africa came shortly after the completion of the book of Christian philosophy called The City of God, that was completed by Augustine of Hippo in the Roman province of Numidia which stood against the claims that Christianity was the reason for Roman decline. Part of the migrational pressures which caused the Germanic tribes of Central Europe to invade and occupy the lands of the Western Empire were created by the eastward expansion of the Huns from the Eurasian steppe. The most famous of all the Hunnic leaders was Attila, and Attila would have ambitions of his own in the lands of the Roman empires. Attila would attack the Balkan lands of the Eastern Empire and befriend Germanic tribes of Central Europe to increase his own power. For Attila, there were also those Germanic tribes who feared him more than they feared the Romans. And so the Roman military commander Aetius was able to assemble a large coalition himself to defend his realm against the power of Attila. 
On the 20th of June, 451, the two armies met at the Catalaunian Plains in northern Gaul and Attila was defeated. Despite the threat of Attila and the Huns being permanently repelled, it was simply a case of waiting for the next powerful leader of the next powerful barbarian tribe to rise up and invade the remains of the Western Empire with its diminished territory and its disorganised and antiquated constitution, which now made it no more powerful than any other European entity. Odoacha was the leader of a Germanic tribe of hazy distinction, possibly Gothic, and he made advances to depose the Emperor of the Western Empire, the child ruler Romulus Augustus. The real power of the Western Empire was Romulus Augustus's father, Orestes, who had deposed the previous emperor. Odoacha managed to capture and behead Orestes in 476 and depose his son Romulus Augustus. He would then write to the Eastern Empire's emperor to inform him of his intention to rule the Italian peninsula and because the Eastern Emperor was not particularly keen on the last ruler anyway, he was happy to allow this barbarian ruler to be the new monarch in Italy. And this is the traditional date for the fall of the Western Roman Empire. Well, that's that. That's the Roman Empire all dealt with, put to bed, and thank you very much for sticking with it. And um, that was a big, long journey, wasn't it? I can't, can't remember how many, maybe 27, 28 episodes, something like that about the Romans. Um, you'll be pleased to know that we're moving on. So next week, we're going to be looking at the Celts. Uh, but, uh, of course, uh, most of what we know about the Celts has been given to us by the Romans. So we don't get rid of the Romans that easily, unfortunately. When we talk about other cultures, we're going to be probably referring back to the Romans as well. So as we talk about them all individually, um, I think you'll find that there's little getting away from the Romans while we're still in this volume. But nonetheless, it'll be fun to move on and I'll tell you what there's a, there's a lot less material to work with now so whereas these stories were quite easy to tell because everyone tells pretty much the same story uh, when we get on to the Celts it's very very contentious about who does what and um, what we believe and, and one thing and another and uh, so it should be interesting to explore that and uh, so it'll be a different dynamic as we move away from the Romans but thank you anyway and uh, this is obviously the first podcast of 2021. I hope you all had a lovely Christmas and New Year. And um, we uh, now move into 2021 and lots of exciting subject matter to be tackled. And this should also be the year of the start of Volume 4 as well. So that will be interesting. We'll be moving into the medieval world during the course of this year too. So... Um, Let's uh, do what we normally do. Let's have a, a look at some of the messages received. First one from Emmanuel Jiri, who puts, uh, Hello Chris, I recently discovered your series of podcasts and find them fabulous. Indeed, your great scripting and storytelling make ancient history available, understandable and much enjoyable to the layman that I am. Now when I walk my dog, I travel through ancient Rome, the seven wonders of the world and so much more. Thanks for the great job. Keep it up. 
it must be a, a very long walk um, if you're walking all the way through ancient Rome. But anyway, thank you. I, I'm I'm being uh, I'm being facetious. Sorry, I, I apologise. Um, that's a very kind message, uh, Emmanuel. Thank you, and I'm glad that um, I'm managing to uh, entertain you. And um, obviously, the remit of the podcast is to try and make it um, as accessible as possible. I don't want to be using loads of historical jargon and, and confusing uh, anyone that's listening to it. So that's a good validation of the remit of the podcast. Daniel Brooks has written in and said, Hi Chris, I wanted to tell you how much I love the podcast. I discovered the podcast for a circuitous route. The editor of the website talkingpointsmemo.com is a guy named Josh Marshall and he's posted numerous reading lists focused on history. And one of the books he strongly recommended was titled 1177 BC, The Year Civilization Collapsed by Eric Klein. It's about the end of the Bronze Age, and I love the book. I'm an impatient doctor. Uh, I'm, I'm an impatient, not an impatient, as in having no patience. He's an inpatient doctor at Connecticut. Sorry about that. And I recently started a new job that I need to communicate. Uh, I need to commute to uh, about 35 minutes each direction. I wanted to find a history podcast, and I came across your podcast in a Google search. I'm hooked. I, I just finished listening to your series on ancient Egypt in volume two. Wonderful work, really great. I have to say, working in a hospital through uh, throughout the COVID era has at times been stressful and uh, being able to decompress to and from work with your podcast has been tremendously enjoyable and relaxing. I wanted to say thanks for your hard work and dedication. I will be donating to your Patreon account as a way of saying thank you. Well, thank you, Daniel. Um, probably can't thank you enough actually if you're um if you're working uh, in the medical industry during uh, this difficult time um you know a lot of strength to you um you know certainly um i hope that you're able to cope with um with the the stress of of the whole um the whole duty of what you have to do and um thank you so much for uh, listening to the podcast and thank you so much for everything you're doing and and I would echo that sentiment to anyone who works in the medical industry who listens to this podcast I think um, you are truly doing an amazing job and I just you know there's times where I just don't know how you you do it I'm sure you probably go into autopilot but to do it sort of day in day out uh, is incredible and um, I can't tell you how much respect I've got for that and um, also, thanks for the message, Daniel. Um, the um, yes, Eric Klein, wonderful gentleman who um, has done some great lectures. A very uh, sort of good-humoured guy, and has worked, I think, extensively out there in the sort of the Near East archaeological um, areas. And um, yeah, I, I've not read the book Eleven Seventy-Seven BC, um, but I've certainly heard him talk about it and. Um, and there's certainly uh, material and interviews that Nick Barksdale, the study of antiquity in the Middle Ages YouTube channel, um, Nick has kindly sort of uh, recreated 20 of my podcast episodes into videos, but he's also interviewed uh, Eric Klein as well. And um, that's a fascinating interview um, to watch. And uh, I think he might have split it apart into various sort of uh, bite-sized subjects as well which is so it's quite watchable 
Um, Nick's channel is is very good, so I encourage you to go and and see that if you haven't already. It's called the Study of Antiquity and Middle Age and the Middle Ages. And um, if it's not part of your YouTube playlists, um, you know what you're playing at. You know if you like history, you'll love that channel. So go and subscribe to it now. Now, of course, Daniel mentioned there that um, he was going to make donation to the Patreon account and. Uh, by doing that, he now becomes a lifelong member of the History of the World podcast Illuminati. And he, uh, he has the distinction of uh, having um, enhanced and, and helped the project that he's enjoying, the History of the World podcast, the one that you're listening to right now. And um, if you want to uh, donate like Daniel and help to keep the podcast going and, and uh, contribute towards its future success, then uh, don't hesitate. Go along to the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website, click on the Patreon link and sign up to make a donation for as little as $1 per month. So it doesn't have to be a lot at all, but everything adds up and really helps me to keep producing this podcast and hopefully to do so for many years to come. And um, so we welcome into the History of the World podcast Illuminati this week. Those who have chosen to uh, dip in and make those contributions, of course, Daniel Brooks himself, alongside Fran Dumas, Ian Wold, and Mark Van Coy. So thank you uh, very much um, to all of you for joining the History of the World podcast Illuminati and opting to support this podcast. An interesting one here from Adam Cote, who has uh, he's written into the podcast before, uh, but he's written in again, and he, and, he, and I'll read it out this time. He says, by yesterday, I finally got to the point to give my kids the first history lesson about prehistoric times, basically the content of the first two episodes of your podcast. I simply followed your material and made a PowerPoint presentation of it with pictures from the internet of the different species the footprints, the bones with the tool marks, etc. Also, my eight-year-old acted as an ape and my 11-year-old as the human to show each other how the spine was or was not at an angle with the skull and the legs and how different our footprints were when we we're on four feet versus when we we're on two feet. The result, they today they ask me when the next history lesson will be. So back to PowerPoint for me. Thanks again. Best regards, Adam. That's a wonderful message. They're the kind of messages I love to receive where I can see that, you know, we're, we're enjoying, we're making history fun, you know, and uh, what better way to make it fun than for children and, and that will stay with them, you know. They'll grow up and they'll, and they'll always retain that basic knowledge and understanding of, of history and, and then any time that they hear anything related to it they'll think they'll, they'll feel quite special about it they think well I know all about that already and that can only help them to grow into um, adults who are genuinely interested in studying history and you know the next generation of, uh, of us um, you know us history podcasters you know might be in the making and um, maybe that will also give other parents the confidence to be able to do such things for their children. I'm sure there's many parents out there that would love to 
sort of involve their children more in learning about history, but are not sure how to set about doing it. And I think, you know, that's a wonderful idea you've come up there with, uh, Adam. That's a really, I can imagine that that was a lot of fun and, uh, and your children loved it. Now, it's also worth mentioning at this point that if you love the History of the World podcast and you can't get enough of it and you don't know how to wait seven days for the new episode and you have to do something about your fix, um, then there is a new Facebook page that has been started up by Jenna Osborne and it's called the History of the World podcast fan group. And um, it's uh, really quite good. It's really, there's a lot of activity uh, going on there by Jenna. And I'm sure she'd love for you to get involved and, um, you know, start um, contributing your own material. Um, and it's a way for fans of the podcast to interact with each other. Yet another way for you all to interact with each other. So I would say go along, give it a try. Um, if you go to the History of the World podcast page um, and uh, on Facebook and scroll down, you should be able to find um, a link from um, Jenna that she's put on there. Um, but otherwise, search for the History of the World podcast fan group and uh, join in all the fun. Now, I know we talk a lot about money and, and how you can support the podcast financially, but of course, uh, you don't have to. Um, make financial contributions to support the podcast. You can simply rate and review the podcast. And uh, if your review is, um, you know, if it if it comes up on my list, I will read it out. Uh, but this week um, there hasn't been any new reviews on um, on iTunes on Apple Podcasts, as it's called now. And um, that's probably because you've all eaten too much over Christmas. So now that we're in the new year, you've got no excuse. If you enjoy the podcast and you haven't written a review or given it a rating, go and do it now. It really helps the podcast. It helps the project. And um, like I say, it, we, all, we often talk about money. It's not all about the money. Sometimes it's about the ratings. And that's how we expose the podcast to more people. So if you haven't done a rating or a review of the podcast, go and do it now. Go and help us out. Well, there we go. Let's wrap it up for another week. Thank you very much for listening. And um, next week, we're going to be doing something completely different. We're going to be finding out more about the Celts and just exactly what is the difference between a Celt and a Gaul. That's always a, a good question. And uh, also, when did the Celts migrate to Ireland? We're going to explore all of those questions next week. So until then, um, looking forward to it. Thank you ever so much and uh, be good. Do you want more from the History of the World podcast? Then visit our website, historyoftheworldpodcast.com. You can join our discussion forum and find us on social media. Support the podcast for as little as $1 per month by clicking the Patreon link. Email the show at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com. The best ones will be read out. Be sure to rate and review the show wherever you listen to us.